Welcome to episode 349 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we are expressing do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our uh, families, friends, pets, or uh, frankly, even our own three weeks from today. It's going to be a, a good interview today with uh, New York Times reporter Nicole Perlroth, who covers cybersecurity and digital espionage and is the author of a new book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. Uh, but before that, let's do our news roundup. We've got Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting with us. Hi, Paul. Hey, Stuart. Happy to be here. And we've got Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology, law, and policy at Georgetown and does tech policy at the Future of Privacy Forum. Good to have you, Mark. Delighted to be here. And Nate Jones is here, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Nate, good to have you back, too. Thank you for having me, Stuart. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the chief provocateur and host of today's program. Uh, jump right in. I, it, it, it's kind of uh, a deja vu all over again with Super Micro. Uh, we have a an elaborate story that reeks of I told you so from Bloomberg, claiming to have new evidence and putting forward a lot of new evidence that super micro hardware has been hacked mercilessly by China and that the U.S. has been fighting a rearguard action to try to deal with that. If you remember, that story was widely criticized for lack of real deep substance and a lot of pushback from some of the companies that cited. Nate, does Bloomberg does do a better job this time of putting substance behind their accusations? Yeah, despite the, the criticism last time, they can't uh, get out from under the microscope here, so to speak. Super micro, you know, I think the they did a better job. There's still some some complaints about some of what might be garbles and and people people complaining about the fact that they don't have enough fidelity in the article on exactly what the vulnerability is. Yep. And I think, you know, some of that criticism is is frankly warranted, but it, to me it's it's not surprising. I think they added a lot of meat to the bones here. And in in my experience, you know, law enforcement doesn't take the kinds of investigative steps described in the article including obtaining FISA warrants to to investigate Supermicro and its possible involvement here. or And it doesn't level the kinds of accusations, even anonymously, that we're seeing here. And so, you know, they may not have enough for a conviction. It's not clear to me that they even really understand exactly how the Chinese government is able to, to leverage Supermicro's chips to get in. And, and the degree to which Supermicro and its employees are even involved here knowingly or unwittingly. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of smoke and, and it appears that, you know, at least if I were in the tech industry and thinking about buying Supermicro products, I'd be pretty worried that there may be some fire. Yeah, um, I, I, I felt the same way. I, I thought, uh, you know, Pwn All the Things had this long tweet storm about all the questionable authority for various aspects of the report. And I, I thought he managed to suggest that there's not as much support as you might like for the idea that a single chip smaller than a grain of rice was buried in a, a motherboard. But 
if that's the case, what he's really pointing out is that maybe it was a, a chip smaller than a grain of rice. Maybe it was a firmware uh, hack. Maybe it was an update hack. Or maybe it was all three. This is not good news for Supermicro. No. No. And, you know, one interesting thing uh, to watch here will be the degree to which people in the industry react to this and that it starts hurting Supermicro's bottom line. You know, for for years, I think, whether it's been, you know, a bit of knowledge and and a willingness to look the other way to, to save money or, or get superior products, people were willing to accept these kinds of risks or it may have been a little bit of naivete or a combination of the two. But, you know, with all of the things, you know, from solar winds to these reports on Supermicro, you know, and and the I think the broader focus on on the importance of cybersecurity, it'll be interesting to see if people start to walk away from them and and start to remove them, and and their equipment from their networks. You know, I'm not an expert enough to know how difficult that will be for people to do, but you know, I would sure be thinking about it if if I were running a major technology company who was relying, you know, at least in part on some of their stuff, because the, you know, if you're proven wrong in the long run, this could really cost you. And yeah. so, uh, and, and I, they, you know, the, the Supermicro said, well, they never came to us to tell us that they were doing this investigation. And there's two possible interpretations. There was no investigation or they were afraid you might be part of the problem and not part of the solution. Right? And that's pretty worrisome as well. So, yeah, this I think this story is going to come back uh, and probably in the form of, as you say, people starting to make decisions about what they're going to actually be willing to buy. I thought there was a, there was a, also a really interesting three paragraphs suggesting that Lenovo had had the same problem. And Lenovo was, if there was a Chinese company that had successfully won trust with the U.S. government, it was Lenovo. And this sounds like those days are gone. Yeah, I, I, I'd been hearing rumors for a while now that, that they hadn't won over everybody's trust in the U.S. government. And so, you know, there's a little bit less detail on that, but it is it is clear that that at least some in the government are a little bit nervous about Lenovo too. And, you know, it, it, it also, I think, adds a little context to a story we'll talk about later on Biden's executive order, chips and other critical industries. And and I think, you know, more broadly, again, on the heels of solar winds, you know, it really puts a spotlight on, on just how complicated defense is and just how the broad the scope of things are that we have to defend here. And, and, you know, at least for me, it, it really, you know, puts an impetus on figuring out what we can do beyond simply trying to, to defend ourselves to, to actually deter malicious uh, cyber attacks like this, because defense is, is just tough. I don't know. It just seems, you know, impossible to do successfully. So we could all imitate the Oldsmar water supply team who had what must be the single most insecure system uh, hacked by somebody who actually for briefly clicked on something that would have poisoned the citizens of Oldsmar if the uh, lie had gotten through, although the, the city insists that it wouldn't have. Uh, 
I, you know, this that was a big story for about a day and has kind of disappeared as everybody took another look at it and said, yeah, kind of looks like an insider. And nobody knows which insider because everybody had the same login credentials. Yeah. You know, I thought you'd start with the bright side, Stuart. You know, other employees did catch it early, which is good, of course, because the, the consequences could have been disastrous. But yeah, from, you know, running, running their system on an old operating system that's not even supported by Microsoft anymore to not having a firewall to giving everybody the same login credentials. This is sort of a study in, in what not to do when it comes to cybersecurity, even just on the basics. And I think um, you're right, it, it went away quickly. You know, it's a little troubling to me, but I, I I worry sometimes that people just sort of have come to expect a certain level of of insecurity when it comes to cyberspace, and and it allows these these things to move off the front pages a little too quickly, and I think. You know, there has, you know, the other thing that may have aided that a little bit is the speculation that it could have just been an inside job that one of these employees, you know, acted inappropriately, to say the least. And that's that's not exactly comforting, obviously. And, you know, frankly, I think it's one one other thing that's been little noticed in, in a lot of these conversations is that, you know, especially when you get into the private sector they are just not good at um, identifying or anticipating potential insider threats. They don't do a great job of, of investigating employees. There's, there's a certain level of trust that's just handed to whoever they hire. So let's, and, not, let's not blame the private sector for this. This is almost certainly a municipal water supply with municipal employees uh, who are notorious for their uh, enthusiasm for getting the job done. So it, 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 this, is, this is a tough one to, uh, to blame on the private sector. I think it's just that they don't have any money and, or incentive. Uh, uh, yeah. Just a little bit in de their defense. Yes, the employees are probably partially to blame. But the real guilty party here is whoever it is who's their funder, right? Uh, I, I mean, I, I haven't pressed down on this, whether they're a county funded or state funded. But, you know, I have had over the last five years a half dozen clients who were municipalities, state and local agencies and anytime I recommend something to them, they say, yeah, that's five years of capital expense for me that I, I just don't have any funding. I had one client who had all this PII that was out there and just needed to be encrypted, but his servers were so antiquated that they couldn't handle modern day encryption protocols. And I said, buy new servers. They said, yeah, 12 years of CapEx under my current budget system. So... You know, I, I get it, right? I, I get it that it, it, we shouldn't let it go. And, and I actually agree with Nate quite a bit that, that part of this is almost certainly that it turned out to be an insider and not Russia. And so that makes it a lot less sexy and just more disgruntled employee. But there's a systematic unwillingness to invest because it's all cost, right? And a hidden benefit. And it's a, it's a very classic economic, you know, externality and we haven't figured out how to deal with that yeah 
And that's that's exactly where I was going to go, actually. I mean, I think one of the things this raises is we have to completely, I think, rethink how we're doing security, especially in critical infrastructure sector, sectors here. You know, with our our system of federated government and and you know a laissez-faire approach to privately run aspects of critical infrastructure, we have to ask ourselves: Are these people? not only capable, but also are they funded and are they set up for success in this space? And if not, we need to completely rethink, I, I believe, how we do this. And and if that means, you know, facilitating more of these people to move to to cloud services and, and centralizing security in the hands of a, a smaller number of people that are more carefully regulated, I think that's something we've got to start to look at because this, this approach of letting everybody kind of do it their own way is dangerous. Yeah. So the water districts are, you know, some of them are quite independent. And so there's no oversight. And we probably do need, the states probably need to play a bigger role there. We had the same problem with running elections. And we ended up pouring money into state and local electoral systems to try to get them to up their game in cybersecurity. And we, we may have to do the same thing with the water and sewage. Well, we, we had the same problem with the electric grid 15 years ago. And we know how to do this. The real problem is, is that in the end, almost every bit of infrastructure is cyber enabled now. And almost all of it is is subject to assault. I, I did a, a study on the agriculture industry. And you would be surprised at how vulnerable meatpacking plants are. Huh. Right? Hmm. Be, I, well, I mean, there, there, there are no humans on meatpacking plant floors today. None. Zero. It's all automated. It's all, and, and you know, so, so I, I hear you, Nate, and I agree with you in theory, but, but the end of that is essentially the, the federal cyber-enabled regulation of everything, because everything is critical, or most everything. It's a very hard problem. Okay, so uh, from that one uh, unsolvable problem to another, uh, Mark suddenly paying having having people who link to news sites pay the sites when they link to them as opposed to basically thanking them for the traffic uh, has become a hot topic in multiple countries can you give us a kind of overview tour of what other countries are doing about paying for news links yeah the the news is is about a mandatory bargaining code between news media outlets in Australia and digital platforms, essentially Google and Facebook. The proposal surfaced last, last year in July from the Australian government, and the final version was released in December. Uh, and, then, and then last uh, Friday, it passed a key Senate committee, and it's likely to be adopted by the Australian parliament this week. It, it calls for three things. One is mandatory bargaining between the, the platforms and the Australian news media outlets. And if the, if the bargaining doesn't produce an acceptable flow of funds, acceptable in the eyes of the, the Australian news media, they can go to a mandatory arbitration where the arbitration criteria are weighted heavily in the, on the side of the Australian news media companies. The other thing that is required is a is an algorithmic notification. If the if the if the platforms are going to change their internal processes or their algorithms in ways that adversely affect the news media outlets, 
they have to let them know that 14 days before they implement it. They can, they can still do it, but, but they have to notify them that they're going to be doing it. So one of the things that kind of I, I thought, oh, yeah, okay, fine. They're going to try to extract something from Google. It's a little unfair because Google's actually sending them traffic. But, you know, as between newspapers and Google, what do I care? And then I realized that the law says anybody who makes 150000 Australian dollars a year a, a, and links to a news site in Australia owes them money. Now, yeah, that, that's, that's not quite right. That's Willa Remus's take on it, but that's not quite right. I mean, it applies only to Facebook and, and, to, and to Google. Microsoft jumped into the discussion and said, it doesn't apply to us, but we'd be happy to live under it uh, if it did apply to us. And Facebook and Google are so upset about this that they threatened to leave Australia. Microsoft say, hey, we, we'd, never, we'd never leave. So I, I think that that's an exaggeration about what the, what the law does. And, and, and yet, you know, it, 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 isn't, it isn't a complete solution to the, to the tech power issue because, of course, it just relates to the news media uh, companies. It's not connected to any of the other business customers of, of Facebook and, and Google. And, and Microsoft said that maybe we should apply this in other countries like Europe uh, and the United States. Europe already has something like this in their copyright directive, which they passed in 2019. And requires the tech companies to negotiate with the copyright owners. And uh, France transposed that into its national law. And, and under that, just this uh, last month in, 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 in January, Google signed a deal with some of the, the major French media outlets to the consternation of some of the lesser ones. That's what happens when you we try to exactly. support you handed all the power to Google, and it wasn't just the lesser ones. AFP is is the main French uh, news service, and they got left out in favor of Reuters. So uh, there there is real power uh, in who Google chooses to aim this this river of cash at. Yeah, but they still require to negotiate with them, and it's just a matter of who gets in there first. AFP is going to get their stuff, but but the real problem is that. It's a negotiation based upon the market value of the what the firms have to offer, and the little guys are never going to be able to get as much as the big guys. So it's really a legacy media subsidy. And so if you're trying to do something about local news, this might not be the ideal way to do it. You know, Europe is not going to mess with that at the time being, but that other element in the Australia uh, law, the algorithmic notification, they might... They might take that, take that on because it fits in nicely with their Digital Services Act and, and some sort of expansion of that idea of algorithmic notification might find its way into that act. In the United States, there really isn't much going on in this area. There's some national proposals for an exemption from the antitrust laws for news media to negotiate with tech companies and, and some subsidies and tax credits uh, that have been proposed at the national level. There is a digital tax that just passed uh, the state of Maryland. Yeah, they're the first to do it. Uh, it won't be the last, it's my bet. And the, but the money doesn't go to local news. It, it goes to local education and, and organizations like Free Press that want to use a digital tax to pay for local news heads say, hey, me, me too, I want to be in this too. Uh, let me add it. So it, it's, it's not a complete solution to the local news issue, this, this mandatory negotiation, and it's not a complete solution to the power of tech companies, but it's a, it's a piece in the puzzle, and it'll probably be something that will be thrown into the mix both here and in Europe once it passes Australia, which, which is likely to happen this week. So I, I am now convinced that the most interesting thing for the next 10 years will be 
how the world, and including the U.S., restores the information establishment. That's that's what's going on here. Uh, everything from deplatforming to sharing the spoils of news links is about who's who's going to be in the club that gets to decide what's the news for the vast majority of people. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of experiments, and it's going to be an exercise of raw power at who gets in and who gets out, and plenty of politics as well. Going to be fascinating going to be a little hard if you're conservative because they're already out, but it will be a fascinating sociological experiment. Yeah, you'll also see some efforts to support local public media. And so it'll be a fight between the larger commercial interests and defenders of, of, of local public media. It's not a fair fight, and we can see which way it'll probably go, but there'll be some struggle. Okay, uh, Paul, you and a bunch of people I think of as pretty smart uh, um, joined in the report on Chinese technology platforms in the U.S. and had some recommendations at least about how to think about the problem. I wouldn't say that you were proposing a, uh, a complete set of solutions. So why don't you tell us about the report and then tell us where all the litigation stands over Chinese technology platforms operating in the U.S. Jump uh, in. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for that. I was the you know, least notable member of this group, including Chris Inglis, who is, you know, Everybody on the, who listens to the podcast, Jack Goldsmith, Sam Sachs, Jen Daskal, Gary Korn. It was a joint product of Hoover and American University. And I commend to you, everybody, to read the entire report. Um, Which is only about 10 pages. It's, it's quite Yeah, yeah no, it's just simple. So, so here's the basics of it. We had many differing views about China and technology in American platforms. But I think we were all in agreement that there was really a spectrum to be discussed, right? That, that the risks from Huawei chips in our nuclear triad was different for, from WeChat and TikTok. And, and people tended to think of this as just China bad. And, you know, there were many of us in the group who start with the premise, yeah, China, yeah, pretty darn bad, right? But at the same time, you know, there's a difference between access to data threats, which is kind of like, you know, and that's different from known access. You know, TikTok, you know that they're that they're scraping your data versus, you know, Huawei may be scraping your contact list without your knowledge in a handset that they've manufactured. So there's access to data risks. There's influence operation risks. And there's differences there between overt, right, again, between TikTok you know, avowedly selling you, you know, on, on how great China is versus, versus uh, surreptitious propagation of data. And then, of course, there's the, the hard infrastructure risk. We were just talking, Nate and you and I, about the, the wastewater treatment facility and the real risks there that some of those access risks might arise from Chinese hardware intrusions, kind of like also the, the micro thing that we were just talking about and, and, whether, and those sorts of risks. And so what we wanted to really do was kind of put it on a spectrum and ask people to think about that. And then the second thing we wanted to do was ask people to realize that, you know, China bad obscures some of the uh, collateral harms that come from China bad. You know, access to information limitations might limit access to useful applications. 
Uh, I use here in Costa Rica uh, a Huawei app that lets me open my, my gate of my house. Why? Uh, because I don't really think that China is going to target me as a specific risk and and you know, and that the risks from robbers is is not the same. So so the idea behind this was to just kind of create a framework for discussion about the both the risks and then also a little bit about the collateral harms to you know cheaper availability of 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 handsets and things like that that come from making Huawei bad. It doesn't purport to answer any of these questions, and nor would it have, because I think if we'd have tried to get Bruce Schneier and me to agree on on where that risks were, we probably wouldn't have agreed on it. Which, of course, leads us to the, but at least you've got a systematized way of thinking about the problem, which leads us to the litigation. And, you know, the basic answer here is that is that the Biden administration has put most of it on pause for the TikTok and WeChat. They've asked the federal courts to just hold back while they rethink their policies. And they may very well wind up dropping those suits. I, that's kind of what I would predict. There's another battle brewing about whether or not to keep Huawei on the designated entities list. There's litigation over that. There's also a hold on Gina Ramiando's nomination to be Commerce Secretary because she hasn't promised not to keep maintain that. And I'm going to guess in the end that... Huawei will stay on the designated list and that they'll re that they'll reinvigorate the litigation and, and maintain it and defend it, which actually, if you think about it, is sort of exactly what the paper is is asking people to th- at least think about doing. Yeah, without agreeing with the substance. I, I think it is ineluctable that that Huawei's chips in in some in handsets used by the U.S. government is a different risk than TikTok taking a lot of kids' videos, you know, and, and, and they may be working their way towards that. So, so that's kind of the, the alpha and the omega of that discussion. Okay. All right, Chips, because the Biden administration has done, for the first time, instead of just saying we're not going to do stupid stuff like the last administration of one sort or another, they've actually said we're going to do something that really wasn't talked about in the last administration, as far as I can see, and come up with a, a comprehensive plan on chips, uh, what we're going to do about the conflict over chips, and what we're going to do about what is increasingly a chip shortage, because uh, at least in part, Huawei bought so many in at the expectation that they would be cut off as they have been. Nate, this sounds a lot like the Defense Procurement Act, although I didn't see a direct reference to the Defense Procurement Act. Yeah, I didn't either. And and I actually think, I don't know if you planned it this way, but I think, you know, the, the conversation you just had with Paul is a good intro to this, because I think in in a lot of ways, that seems to be how the Biden administration is in approaching some of these issues. I mean, you know, there are certain aspects of the Trump approach to, to China that I, I give them quite a bit of credit for and, and think they did reasonably well on, at least with respect to certain tactics. And, and what I think the Biden administration is doing here is, you know, by ordering this 100-day review reportedly that'll be led by the NEC and NSC to look at and identify 
where where those real risks are and where you know both from a security standpoint and and the standpoint of America's global competitiveness particularly as it relates to emerging technologies and try to make sure we're well positioned to to succeed on those fronts and and look for ways to invest in these things so that we can maintain our our competitiveness and our edge and so so i think it's a it's a smart thing to do like i said i think you know on some level it sounds like they're approaching this in the way that paul was talking about by by trying to to be discerning where they're they're focusing some of these efforts and where they ultimately plan to focus our resources in in allowing us to to be self-sufficient and and I, you know from another perspective i guess potentially decouple ourselves from from china and other other types of technology that's too risky yeah well the the problem is we can decouple from china but we can't decouple from taiwan and south korea because that's where most of the fabs are and the question is are we comfortable with that and maybe we are now but it's not clear to me that we will be 15 years from now and and you know and that may be the conclusion that they reach and and we may see them invest heavily as as has been advocated by by Qualcomm and Intel and others in this industry on the American side in bringing some more of that manufacturing here yeah although i think somebody needs to ask intel if investing in fabs is so important how come you're not <laughs> so all right uh, let's do let's talk law paul there's a First Circuit decision about searching people's phone when they cross the border. This has been, for an area where the law was actually pretty settled, this has been extraordinarily heavily covered, mainly because civil society groups didn't like the way the law was settled and they were determined to unsettle it. It looks like the First Circuit has more or less said, no, we kind of liked it the way it was settled. Well, you know, this is... This is something known as the border search exception to the Fourth Amendment. Since literally the founding of our country, the law has recognized that if you cross an international border, no warrant is required for search. Uh, you know, if you want theory, it goes back to Vettel and the, the incidence of sovereignty, right? But whatever it is, you know, if you cross the border and you're carrying a, a, a suitcase, CBP can stop you and search the suitcase even if they have no suspicion at all, none whatsoever, and it's the foundation of our customs laws and our immigration laws. The only limits that had ever been put on this up until the last couple of years with, with, the, with the cell phones were kind of due process limits. You, they, the border search could not happen because you were black, right? They couldn't do an invasive body cavity search just because, just because they needed some reasonable suspicion that there might be drugs there, right? There were very, very few limits. And, and then we got to cell phones and, and computers. And civil society has argued that cell phones and computers are different. And, and they actually sort of have some support from, from Justice Roberts's Riley decision, which says cell phones are different. Why? I don't know. They are, and I'm not going to actually tell you why? Because there's no articulable reason other than scope and scale, which means that it's different in degree and it becomes a different in kind. And so with that as a basis, courts like the Ninth Circuit have said that unlike every other thing that you carry across a border, 
if you carry your computer or your or your phone, you're not subject to plenary search. You are, you you must have yeah, they vary reasonable suspicion or 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 reasonableness that satisfies the warrant requirement. Something, and the first circuit has gone back and said no. Border searches are like normal things, and we've been searching at the border for forever, and and we're going to search your phone just like we would uh, your written diary, for example. And uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. I am a hundred percent confident that as currently constituted, when and if the Supreme Court decides to resolve this circuit split, they're not going to get rid of the border search exception, and phones are not going to be different. So the the losing side in this case was a who's who of the cyber left. They, they've got a conflict. They could take it to the Supreme Court. You think they're going to bail out on it and, and say, no, we'd rather have a conflict than a, a resolution from this court? I think that that is what they should do, whether or not as, as zealot advo- zealous advocates, they would, they'll take that course. I don't know. It won't help them that much because now that there's a conflict, the next loss that the U.S. government has in the Ninth Circuit is going to go up, right? Yeah, the Solicitor General is going to is going to bring it up from there, or or work to create. I think the Fifth Circuit hasn't yet ruled on this. I'm not sure. So that's another place you could magnify the conflict. It will have to be resolved at some point, and and you know. So I would say that they should probably not take it up, but it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, it'll, it'll go. Okay, so sometime in the next two or three years, we will see a Supreme Court decision on the border search exemption as applied to phones. And uh, I kind of agree with you, Paul. They may tweak it, but they're going to keep it. They, they, I mean, the, the only reason to doubt that they will is that Roberts did rule in Riley as to the, on the search incident to arrest, which was another totally historical. And, and, and Gorsuch's, uh, Justice Gorsuch's uh, views on these things are also unusual, right? Uh, right. He, he's, he's willing to go in multiple directions uh, because of tensions between his libertarianism and his conservatism. The, the only reason to think that there might be a difference is that when you drill down on the ground for like search incident to arrest, the two articulable reasons are safety of the officer, right? Search for guns and prevention of the destruction of evidence, right? So that he doesn't eat it or, or, you know, and if you take a phone away from somebody, right? Without immediately searching it, you've disabled both of those pretty much. You can so put the phone in a, whereas in a Faraday with, cage. when you're trying to decide who you're going to let into the country, you kind of want to know who they've been calling. Well, it, or... When you're deciding who to let into the country, there's the the reason, the rationale that undergirds the decision, the reason for the hi Nicole, the, the the rationale that undergirds the reason for the exception can't be temporized in the same way. So that may be where they make the distinction. Nate, uh, the all the approaches to prosecuting academics who were taking money from China turned into an effort to actually combat propaganda centers on campus as well. That was what the uh, Trump administration did. 
I saw a story that said that the President Biden had sort of lifted that that ban. I didn't see that as anything other than carrying forward the general view they're going to suspend all this China stuff and make their own decisions about where to draw the line. Do you, did you read that as actually reversing the Trump position or suspending it? No, and in fact, I, I think it may even be a little bit broader than the the China thing, or at least the logic behind the action. They, I think, they suspended the number that's sticking in my head is sixty five. I think they they suspended around sixty five executive orders that that Trump signed in in the waning hours of his administration, and are conducting a review of those things. You know, some number of those, including this one, may end up being you know reinstated or continued and and so i don't i don't think there's much there i think you know it's it's mostly just serving the purpose that trump did a lot of those things in the waning hours which is allowing republicans on the hill and and their allies in the media to criticize biden as soft on communist propaganda but i i i wouldn't be surprised if this is one that they they stick with in the end okay so four stories that i just didn't feel I could ignore, but we can't spend much time on them. Open source security woes were really in the news last uh, week. A researcher demonstrated they could hack 35 different tech firms just by changing, just by supplying a, a library that people were relying on their own libraries because there was no public, publicly accessible library. He, he wrote a publicly, publicly accessible library that was hacked and all of the programs said, oh, well, that's the good one. We'll use that one. Uh, kind of an astonishingly easy supply chain attack. And then I saw an article from ION that said, NIST is recommending cybersecurity tools on their website that are out-of-date public source, built on out-of-date public source elements, all of which have known security flaws. So if you went to NIST and said, what's the best tool I could use? They would tell you, use this one, it's buggered. So it's just kind of sad that we, we, we are so far from getting good security in our open source. And uh, we may talk to Nicole Perlroth about that when we get to her. Uh, second story, I, I love this story just because it's such creative policing. So naturally, it's Beverly Hills police, who I'm sure are very well paid and very smart. One cop who didn't like being filmed while he was going about his business by some self-appointed uh, arbiter of what police should do, just started playing his favorite hits from uh, Sublime. So on the theory that if this guy posted the, the, the footage, it would be automatically taken down by the bots that go looking for copyrighted music and forcing takedown. I, I just, you know, I, 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 condemn the the bots but this is the most creative use of those bots that i've seen it's it was very clever and in the justice delayed but nonetheless sweet the canadian woman who was in the new york times about uh, two weeks ago for just viciously destroying the reputations of people against whom she had some weird and uh, 40-year-old grudge has been actually criminally arraigned for those acts of defamation after a career of doing it for 10 or 15 years. So in Canada, justice may be slow, but it does arrive. And then finally, one last law thing. We remember EncroChat was the hacked 
secure phone system that was actually supplied by somebody who was in the pay of law enforcement to organize crime around Europe. Those cases are now going to court and they have spawned this sad, but I, I think ultimately potentially important debate in the UK about which kind of warrant you needed to get because they have wiretap warrants and hacking warrants. And if you got the wrong kind of warrant, all of the evidence would be excluded. And apparently the UK government got hacking warrants. They were accused of having improperly failed to get wiretap warrants. And the question was, is the data that was seized by EncroChat data in transit or data at rest? Of course, it was in transit, but some data was left behind at rest. And the UK Court of Appeals said, that's good enough. You hacked the data after it had been transited, but while it was still sitting in, a a copy of it was sitting in memory, that's a hack, not a, a wiretap. And therefore, all of this evidence can come in. Probably the right result. I'm not sure the angels, they, they properly counted the angels who were dancing on that particular pinhead. Um, okay, that's it. Let's turn now to our interview with Nicole Perlroth. She wrote a new book, which is just out. This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, the Cyber Weapons Arms Race. She's been writing about cybersecurity and the digital arms beat for probably 10 years. Uh, And this book is actually a culmination of research that she probably started 10 years ago. Uh, So Nicole, welcome. Thank you for having me. So how did you decide to write this book? Well, it was a couple things, you know, one, just I was seeing more and more of my stories appear in the footnotes of other people's books. Uh, particularly my coverage of, say, the Saudi Aramco attack. And I just, I knew that I knew those attacks better than anyone. And I had to sort of give myself a pep talk and convince myself to write a book. But I always thought that the zero day market was fascinating. And I had covered it in various iterations for the time, sometimes on the front page, but I don't think it really sat with people. And I knew it was one of these stories that really necessitated a book, you know, a book length yeah. Um, to really show people, first of all, you have to get through the hurdle of explaining what a zero-day exploit is, right. and then diving into the zero-day market and then the stakes for the rest of us. So it seemed like a topic ripe for writing a book, but that said, it was probably the most challenging topic I could have picked. So <laughs> yes. I had a lot of writer's block. It took me seven years. You know, There were times where I didn't touch my Word document for seven months or so, because it was just oh. so intimidating. Uh, but now it's out. So I, 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 I will get in trouble for this, but I have, now that I've written two or three books, I have sometimes said, um, as far as I can tell, writing a book is a lot like uh, bearing a child. You don't really want to start on the next one until you've forgotten how painful the last one was. You've oh done God. both. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was, I, I also had a baby during this period and doing the book was much harder than having the baby. And similarly, <laughs> you know, I can't even think about having another kid until I forget what that was like. And, you know, same with the book. It'll be years before I write another book. <laughs> oh my God. Well, you, you, and you, 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 you use the, the, your pregnancy. You're, you waddle in, in several uh, parts of this book uh, as you talk about uh, uh, the reporting you're doing. In fact, I, I thought it was interesting, and I think this is a, 
this is probably a good uh, tip for people who are writing. You put yourself in the book, and you're really a character in the book, I think. Uh, and I, I wonder how much of the character is really you. You kind of say, oh, I'm just this petite little blonde, you know, walking <laughs> through, and people have to explain this to me. I, I, it, it didn't sound completely uh, like, um, like the way you would be over a drink or in talking to people about uh, these topics. Yeah, it was it, it's it was a struggle to make the decision of whether to put myself in the book or not because, you know, I work for the New York Times and they really beat the I and me out of you. You know, you're never talking in the first person unless it's a very long story and you might say he told me, uh, but that's really the only time you appear in these things and you you try to disappear as much as possible. But I felt that this particular segment of the industry, the zero day market really necessitated someone to grab the reader by the hand and show them around. And I didn't want to be in the whole book, but I knew there were parts where my experiences were probably really adding to the color of the narrative and also lent itself to this accessibility. Uh, and I wanted to write this book always for my mom and the lay reader. Uh, I didn't want to rate this for the technical audience. So I felt like I really needed to be there the, to hold the reader's hand at certain points. And then I duck out of the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, in those early days, I really was sort of the ditzy, um, naive blonde that I write about in the book. Of course, later I become much more jaded. But, you know, in those early days, I was just this sort of idiot dropped into this world. I mean, I'm, I talk about warning the times that there are much more qualified reporters who've covered cybersecurity for a long time that they should hire in lieu of me. And, you know, they famously told me, you know, we, we interviewed all those people. We didn't understand anything they were talking about. You're hired. <laughs> and, um, you know, now 10 years later, I, I, I know a lot about this space, but I still get criticized for dumbing things down for the lay audience. And, um, you know, that'll that'll continue to happen forever. So I, 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 I agree. I see a lot of criticism, uh, it, uh, especially from techies of New York Times reports. Many of them have your name on them, but they, they usually have David Sanger's name on them as well, or Mark Mazzetti's. Uh, I, so I'm not sure it's aimed at you. Do you think it's particularly um, focused on you? Ah, uh, it's a hard question. I mean, I do a lot of these co-bylines and I also, it's hard to tell what's what. I mean, on Twitter, I try to engage with people. Um, I really do. And I think that also invites, you know, trolling yeah. and vitriol. But Well, because you know, they know you're going to actually read what story. they wrote. Right, exactly. And I, that was probably my first mistake. But, you know, I, I write these co-byline stories and then you just see these memes come out about me and they're never about David or Mark or Scott Shane. They're always about Nicole Proleroth. So I do think there's a little bit of, you know, misogynistic undertones to some of it. Um, I think some of it is totally just because I, you know, engage with these communities and I'm the one that goes to the hacking conventions. You know, David doesn't have to go to those. He goes to all the Washington. Oh, yeah. He hangs, he hangs well, out with foreign at, policy types. Uh, uh, right. I'm right stuck in. at black hat parties, you know. So it's it's a little bit of it's a little bit of both. I love the story where you said uh, they said, well, you can come to our event but you have to wear a neon green glow stick around your neck so everybody will know not to talk to you? 
Yeah, that was Dave Itell. He once he knew I was writing this book, he tried to disinvite me from the conference that I had been invited to, and I'd already bought my ticket to Miami. And I basically said, I'm coming no matter what, you know, whether I have to just go creep around bushes at the conference or not, I'm going to be at this hotel <laughs> during your conference. <laughs> so he said, okay, fine, you know, you can come. Um, and then I showed up and they said here, and it was this neon green glow stick they wanted me to wear around my neck. And I said, are you kidding me? And they said, just count yourself lucky. We almost made you tie a balloon to your neck and walk around. <laughs> Here's my theory. Go ahead. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Dave used to work at the National Security Agency, uh, as did I briefly. Uh, uh, and when somebody who wasn't cleared was on the floor of a particular building, there were red lights in the ceiling, like a, a, a mm -hmm. police uh, uh, light that would twirl and flash so that everybody knew they couldn't talk about certain topics. Uh, so this, mm -hmm. is, this is just um, uh, a repurposing of technology that uh, NSA uses. So, okay, I mentioned that in the book, the blinking red light, but one question I always had is, is it someone's badge that triggers the light or does someone manually press a button anytime someone who's not cleared walks into a room? They would love it to be automatic, but as far as I can tell, it's okay. actually human-derived. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so let me, uh, let's me let get to the book. Um, I think there's a thesis here, and but I'd like you to tell us what the thesis is. You, you, you see some problems, uh, you identify a source to those problems, and you've even got some suggestions at the end for how to address those problems. So give, give, us, give us the 10-story um, the, the elevator pitch. So I think the book is about incentives. I think it's about how for a long time the incentives were pushing us more towards a vulnerable world than towards defense and security and locking things down. And to be fair, I think that that incentive structure worked just fine in the 90s when we were all using different technology. You know, if we found a zero day, a hole in Huawei software, obviously we were going to use that to monitor our enemies in North Korea and China and Sudan and places that didn't use American software. But over the last decade, we've all started using the same software. We all use iPhones and Androids and Microsoft Windows, whether we know it or not. And we're rolling all the software into our critical infrastructure. So the book explores what I came to think of as this moral hazard, which is how do we decide uh, to leave a system open when clearly it creates a major vulnerability for Americans too. And as I report out this book, Every new attack that happened seemed to be a slightly deadlier version of the last and coming from corners of the world that we just did not anticipate them gaining that level of capability so quickly. Iran being a great example of that, North Korea being another great example. And so by the end of the book, I sort of make the argument that we might be the most advanced player on offense. I think we still are. But we are also now the most targeted nation state on earth. You can't deny that anymore. We are constantly getting hacked every day. I've lost track. Um, and we are also the most vulnerable. And I talk about in the book, you know, this trip I made to Ukraine, 
where they essentially said to me, listen, they turned off the lights here for six hours. They did it a couple times. It wasn't that big of a deal. You know, yes, it was in the dead of winter and, and they crossed a Rubicon and all of that. But we are just not that digitized. If they do the same thing to you, you're screwed. <laughs> and they were right. You know, they, they really were right. We are so much more digitized than they are in Ukraine. The one thing that saved Ukraine is the one thing that makes us infinitely more vulnerable. So I wanted to write this book to draw awareness to this, to write it in a really accessible way so people understand the stakes of some of these espionage programs. And I don't think anyone really understood what, 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 we, what the trade-off was that we were making. And I also think for so long, we've outsourced these discussions to people like you and me, who've been in this industry for a long time, who know what a zero-day exploit is, who know a little bit about the trade-off, who also know what kind of counterintelligence can be got with some of these tools. Um, but I think it's time now that Americans are feeling these attacks more and more with the attacks on hospitals and the ransomware attacks on cities and the water treatment facility hack last week. I think it's time we, we, we make the stakes known to American people and we have some of these broader discussions and we stop outsourcing them to the Dave Vitels of the world who for a long time have had a role in this industry and profited off this industry and haven't been able to talk about certain elements of the business. And so that was my goal with the book, you know, make make it known what the trade-off is so we can have these conversations now before we get to a place. I mean, we are so virtualized, but we are also just at the cusp of artificial intelligence and virtualization that it's not too late for us to course correct. And I don't really have the best answer here. I'm not saying let's stop offense, let's stop espionage. It's the last thing I would say. I'm just saying, if we are going to continue to go down this route, we better lock up our own castle because we are incredibly vulnerable as it stands. So that's, I, I, for, I don't think there's anybody who would disagree that uh, uh, we are vulnerable and uh, probably getting more vulnerable. I do think where you're going to get pushback is you've picked a couple of, frankly, villains for the piece, uh, uh, people that take the blame, and it's folks who sell zero days. Uh, and you suggest, uh, you, you, you mentioned Dave Vitale. Dave, I should tell you, has appeared on the podcast uh, and will appear again, and I'm going to give him a chance to, to respond. But uh, I, I, you talked about uh, vulnerability research labs. You talked about uh, um, a, a variety of people, uh, John Waters, who got to be one of the most colorful people uh, uh, in the book, although he did, we didn't get as much color as there is there, uh, for sure. Um, a, and so part of your suggestion is we created, the government created, and then a bunch of smart people jumped into a market for ODES uh, and made America and the world less secure. And the, the pushback I would say I hear on that is, one, there was already a market for ODES. Uh, uh, the U.S. may have bought some, but lots of people bought them. Uh, and it would be hard-pressed to say the U.S. bought them first or that Americans were even the principal suppliers of ODES. Uh, uh, this is a market most people, I think, would... would say who are criticizing the book, this is a market and it is a market that was inevitable and your effort to 
pin it on a few American agencies or companies is misstating history. So my answer to this, <laughs> my answer to this would be, first of all, you know, I wanted every chapter of the book to represent a slice of the market. And overall, where I saw this art going was down a very slippery slope um, to the place we are now where, you know, there is a market. It is far beyond the United States control. It's popping up in places like Buenos Aires and in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, where they're using these tools on their own people. Um, but, you know, getting so so I would just say, you know, some people I thought actually VRL would be really upset. I picked on them. Uh, turns out they were quite happy <laughs> with the chapter. And I've been getting so many complaints from their competitors who are messaging me asking <laughs> that me they why I focused on VRL well, and I, not Trail of Bits and all these other uh, yes. uh, exploit developers. So uh, it's been very interesting. It is, it is the opposite of the blowback I thought I would get. Well, um, but I think I, part of it is I think VRL would feel with some justice that you didn't really land up punch on them. You stood around or sat around. You, you describe yourself as very pregnant and hanging around their lobby. Uh, but you you actually never talked to Jim Miller, the uh, the CEO. No, did I, I, did, I did reach out and um, I never heard back. And I spoke with people who were there in the earliest days. So I felt like, okay, you know, I'll work around uh, his non-response here. But also, you know, VRL, what they represented was former NSA analysts, leaving the agency and developing these click and shoot tools, you know, playing in the market. They were buying zero days from place from hackers in places like Malaysia and Singapore and some of these other countries. But they were only selling them to the United States and Five Eyes. And, you know, ethically, I would put that in still in a gray territory. But clearly, you know, they're just selling it back to their former employer, you know, no, no harm, no foul. The next chapter really got at, you know, what Dave represents. And let me just say, you know, I actually really like Dave and I think he's a good person. <laughs> I should put that on the record. And, and, and I, I don't think he's, he's this he amoral. Sold he sold his company and is uh, has, it, it has set up a foundation uh, that's feeding uh, people who are out of work in Miami, if I remember right. Yes, yes. See, he's a great guy. The thing about Dave, though, is that Dave embarked on a little bit of a slippier slope. You know, t training uh, police in Europe. Uh, you know, it just it was it was outside Five Eyes. And then I have this story from his employees where the Turkish military wanted a training. And it just so happened that his first employee was Kurdish, you know, grew up Kurdish in Turkey, knew exactly how the Turkish military was going to use these this tradecraft and refused to sell it to them and kind of rallied some of the other immunity employees to tell Dave, you know, we don't want to sell this training to this um, actor. And I think ultimately the story I heard was that Dave went back to them and offered them some sort of really lowbrow web security training session. And I don't even know if they took it. I think they went elsewhere. But, you know, fun fact here, I majored in U.S. foreign policy towards the Kurds vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. So I know a lot about <laughs> the Kurds in Turkey and how the Turkish government uses these tools and all anyone had to do was look at Erdogan's thugs beating up Kurdish protesters on the lawn outside the ambassador's residence a couple of years ago to know how these tools get used. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Dave is in any way bad for you know, offering training. He wasn't exactly selling zero-day exploits. And I actually don't even know the extent to which Dave participated in the zero-day exploit business. You know, at first, 
he told me he didn't play in it. Then later when I asked him, he said, I would never talk about my customers. You know, others have confirmed he has sold zero day exploits to governments, but I don't know if it's just Five Eyes or the US or what it is. Um, but what I would say is, it is interesting that we have fully left the decisions around who we will and will not sell to, to each businessman, entrepreneur, hacker, broker's own moral compass. And I think that is fascinating. Well, up to a point, you know, they, they, we, we do have export controls on encryption. Yes. And it's almost impossible. And Dave, impossible. to be fair, would say, yeah, yeah, yeah Dave yeah. would say that the encryption export controls, you know, are, are real limits in this industry. But, you know, just digging into that a little bit, I mean, so what? They can't sell this. You know, someone in the United States, can't, United States can't sell this to Cuba or North Korea or Iran. But for the most part, they can sell to a lot of other governments. And most of the time, commerce is a rubber rubber stamp for some of these sales. You know, all they have to do is report back, uh, you know, what their sales numbers were. For mass market stuff. To. But it's it, at the end of the day, the Commerce Department doesn't know much about this. NSA administers that. And if you sell to governments, um, most of those export controls on encryption do require individualized licenses or at least licenses per country so that it would be easy enough to say, no, we're not, we, we don't think that you should sell this to uh, Paraguay or uh, uh, Bolivia uh, if you thought they were particularly uh, difficult uh, or uh, customers for, for this. Uh, so the U.S. has controls. It never adopted the controls that the um, uh, Europeans uh, were enthusiastic about in Wassenaar, uh, but that's because it could never write a rule that wouldn't, you know, m many of these tools are just as good for pen testing. In fact, you, they kind of have to look exactly like the hacker tools. And if you want to do pen testing, you have to use those tools. And so every government has an interest in pen testing. And so it's, it's very difficult to say we're not going to ban exports of tools that might actually make other governments more secure without thinking pretty hard about it. So it turned out to be an almost unadministrable um, good government uh, project from, you know, a bunch of woo-woo civil society groups, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, and ironically, the Europeans adopted it, even though this was the one tech area where they actually had a sector that was successful, right? And you talk about that hacking team and VUPEN. Uh, uh, there were plenty of people and probably among the more cynical sellers of um, uh, hacking tools were based out of Europe. Yes. And, you know, I actually agree with, with a lot of the defenses around not putting these rules into practice. I mean, these are dual-use technologies. You know, we, we do use zero-day exploits for defense. This is code. You know, we are sharing information. But, you know, and what, and what that Dave chapter represented was, listen, there are difficult decisions to make here, and we're leaving them largely to the business people themselves. The next chapter is where things get really hairy, which is CyberPoint um, and its subsidiaries, Dark Matter, which aren't just selling to allies. I mean, these are all allies of the United States. They're actually stationing themselves overseas. And sure, in the beginning, this is all kosher. Let's track terrorists. Let's monitor ISIS. Of course, that helps the American war on terror. But very quickly, <laughs> it became hey, can you hack Qatar and find out if they're doing X, Y, Z? Oh, you picked up Michelle Obama's emails in that hack? No big deal. We'll delete them. 
you know, of course, they never deleted them. So, you know, just the the book tracks the prog- progression from, you know, people leaving the NSA to do innocent trainings with some of our closest allies to us sending our own NSA hackers, taking them outside the agency where they receive taxpayer-funded training, stationing them in Abu Dhabi where they're catching Michelle Obama's emails, then First Lady, you know, in their dragnet. So something clearly is is a miss here. <laughs> and then you get into the really cynical players. <laughs> you, you said that twice. And I, I, I will just offer a footnote to that, to that. Okay. If I remember what you said, there she was writing to the um the reigning wife uh, uh, yes. of uh, the sultan uh, I, uh, the leader of qatar uh, yes. and so if you were wiretapping the sultan's wife then you're going to get everybody who sends email to her and if michelle obama sends email to her as i'm sure she did in the course of a, uh, a trip you're going to get michelle obama's emails nobody was as far as i could tell actually looking for the obama emails they showed up in the uh, the queen's uh, uh email account uh that doesn't yes. mean it was good but it it it, it, it is different from targeting Michelle Obama. Yes, yes. The directionality is really important here. We were hacking Shika Moza, and in the course of her communications with Michelle Obama, we were seeing, they were seeing Michelle Obama's emails and flight itineraries and security details and that kind of thing. And the only reason we know about it is because one of the former NSA hackers who was doing that work came and told me about it because it weighed on his conscience so much. And he quit and he came back to the United States while a lot of his colleagues stayed. And those that stayed formed a new subsidiary that was wholly Emirati that had different rules. And by the way, while he was hacking Qatar and and catching Michelle Obama's communications in this dragnet, he was always told that this was cleared from up high at NSA, at the State Department, at Commerce, and it turns out that some of those approvals were years old and that they would have never approved what they were doing then. Yeah, the, the way those usually work is you get a, 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 a an agreement that tells you these are the ground rules for this particular sale of services, uh, and that can run for a few years, but you have to treat every one of those rules as uh, binding and naturally from the foreign government's point of view many of those rules are deeply inconvenient or worse and so there's a constant hydraulic pressure pulling you across the boundary uh yeah this is i I mean this is a great story because you can see it's bound to end in tears but lots of people have a deep incentive to to hope it won't happen to them, to think maybe it won't happen to them, to think that they've still got a fig leaf or some hold on a, a rule that uh, they haven't violated. I, but, you know, inevitably, if they don't violate it, sooner or later, they're, they're going to lose their jobs. So it's, it's a, uh, it is for sure a, uh, a great human story. I don't know that there was anything that U.S. policy could have done to stop that. It could have slowed it down by a year or two. And but you know the the uh, the UAE was going to acquire this capability. They they were determined to acquire acquire it. And <clears throat> these are people who have landed a or put a uh, satellite in Mars orbit. Uh, they can pay for a lot of technology. 
Yes. And, you know, one of the things I don't get into in the book was there was a company that Mark Mazzetti and I discovered. It was called Toe Talk. It was a blatant ripoff of TikTok. And it was an Emirati spy, spy surveillance app, essentially. You know, it had all the same functionality as TikTok, but um, it was being used by the Emiratis to collect voice recordings and track people's location and all kinds of things. And we broke that story in the Times. And who was doing a lot of the engineering work for that? Well, it was no longer American former NSA guys. It was Chinese engineers and you know, people and software developers in India. So yes, they were always going to acquire these capabilities. And getting back to your earlier question, um, you know, the, the, I know that there was a lot of a big supply of hackers in Europe. You know, one of the things I talk about is how some of the early zero days were coming from hackers in Eastern Europe and even Israeli teenagers. But there's no question that some of the biggest bidders <laughs> and uh, countries that really helped catalyze some of these zero day exploit markets was the United States. Um, it was these brokers who were based in the U.S. and then later brokers based in Europe that then sold a lot of these tools to U.S. government agencies. So I, 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 I think let's let's put aside now kind of enabling of foreign government attacks and and and, and deal with this other issue because you, you you from time to time have implied that um uh what the us is doing and nsa is the 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 villain here and in, in your telling uh is leaving open the, uh, these o days uh, so that uh uh, we are all at risk because the zero days are not getting repaired uh, and we're, uh, the, the NSA wants them open so that they can use them for espionage purposes and is insufficiently attuned to the dangers that uh, keeping them, uh, uh, hoarding them is the usual term, uh, are, are posing to ordinary Americans and their businesses. Uh, the biggest criticism that I hear of that is that uh, uh, there are a lot of people who say, O-Days, O-Days are like a dime a dozen. You can find lots and lots of vulnerabilities. Um, the work is turning them into exploits that actually allow you to get inside people's computers and, and to exploit them. And that requires far more work than just the O-Day. And all of that work is work that wouldn't really um, benefit Americans if we didn't do it uh, or if we tried to reverse it. That the, the, the O days are out there and they are all being exploited. And if you said you can't use a particular uh, zero day, nobody would weep. They'd just go find another one and start working on operationalizing it so that the the focus, and you talk a lot about a vulnerability equities process, uh, that the focus on that is just wrong-headed because um, O-Days are not, they're neither the problem nor are they the solution. Well, here's what I would say. I, d I actually don't think of the NSA as the villain. I think, you know, they, they're easy to pick on because this is their secret. And, you know, one of my chapters deals with the links they were willing to go to bury that secret by trying to convince Charlie Miller not to publish his white paper detailing the market back in 2007. But here's my take on that. I mean, I think I lay equal blame 
at the technology companies for using that early period to essentially beat hackers over the head and threaten them with lawsuits instead of taking their warnings uh, seriously. You know, it took them a yeah, long time. Yeah, so you got Marianne Davidson telling Oracle uh, from Oracle saying Waters is immoral and Google yes. is trying to fire Charlie Miller. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, you've got people trying to prosecute the early hackers. Yeah, that's clearly a theme. Uh, uh, and I think you are critical of the industry for trying to bury their mistakes under a pile of lawyers. Yes. Uh, uh, that's fair. Although, you know, isn't that what Brad Smith is doing when he says, oh, uh, it really ought to be illegal for governments to uh, to exploit the software that's full of my mistakes. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they've just reinvented as grand foreign policy uh, the uh, the activities that they were using before when they were threatening to prosecute hackers. Yes. Yeah, so I actually, you know, I, I know you thought from your questions that you sent that um, I was buying Brad Smith's line, you know, but really, I do think it is a little naive. Yeah. I think that it's very important to remember we are on an asymmetrical playing field. You know, before I got brought into this book project, I'd been covering Chinese attacks every single day. And I'm the first one to tell you that some of the most sophisticated attacks that come out of China don't come out of the PLA. They don't even necessarily come from the Ministry of State Security. It comes from these satellite contractors that they tap on the shoulder and say, hey, you're coming to work for us. And we know that in Russia, there is this murky relationship between Russian cyber criminals and the, and the state, because we saw that in the Yahoo indictments. Um, and, you know, in Iran, increasingly the indictments out contractors, you know, they all maintain a degree of plausible deniability yep. that we don't have here. Most of our attacks come from Cyber Command or the espionage operations come out of NSA. We don't have the luxury of going and tapping the best security engineer on the shoulder at Google and saying, tonight you're coming with us. So even if we were to agree to these norms that Brad Smith and others have proposed, you know, we just don't have the luxury of plausible deniability, um, whereas these other states could always claim, oh, we don't know what we don't know what those contractors were doing or what those cyber criminals were up to. Or as Putin said, you know, a couple of years ago, they're like artists. They wake up in the morning and, you know, they paint and there's we have nothing to do with it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and the other thing about the NSA is it, one of the things that was most intimidating about writing this book, I should say, is how to tell the story from inside the NSA. And that's when I found Jim Gosler. And that's when he pointed me to Project Gunman. And Project Gunman, if you read the book, you know, is this classified, now declassified effort under Reagan to go find out uh, how the Soviets were capturing our communications at the embassy. And ultimately, we found this extremely sophisticated implant in the back of our typewriters that was this, um, how do you pronounce it, a magnetometer? Um, you know, that was picking up the, the disturbance from every keystroke and transmitting it to this radio listening unit in the chimney. And it was so sophisticated, it just opened our eyes to the fact that if we don't attack and exploit every new piece of technology that comes on the market, you better be sure the Soviets are going to be doing that. And China is probably going to be doing that. And there are a lot of other adversaries who are going to be doing that. And if we don't 
focus on digital exploitation, we are going to lose the Cold War. That was the thinking at the time. And that kickstarted these programs, um, or at least was the only declassified program that kickstarted these programs that Gossler could point me to. But everyone that you talk to involved in the VEP process will say, this is like the most complicated, worst job I've ever had. I mean, Howard Schmidt, before he passed, God bless him, you know, I interviewed him and he said, you know, there are really no easy answers here. Sometimes playing with the devil in cyberspace is a common thing that we have to accept. And when I met with Michael Daniel for the book, you know, he just looked exhausted. And <laughs> he was basically <laughs> saying, he said to me, and it's in the book, he said, sometimes, you know, these discussions are not neat or clear cut. Sometimes there is blood left on the table. And I don't know actually how the VEP discussions played out under the Trump White House after they dismissed the cybersecurity coordinator role who always led those discussions. I think it was delegated and it was still happening, but I have zero insight into how those discussions played out. So the rule of thumb, the rule of thumb for, for, for Trump interagency is there re wasn't really much of an interagency process and it was delegated down to the agency that cared the most, which would be, probably be um, DNI or NSA. Uh, uh, but I'm sure it goes on because NSA is schizophrenic on this. They, they want security and they want uh, intel operations. So um, the, the line drawing continues. Maybe it's drawn in a slightly different place than if the Commerce Department we're running it, but it's, you know, they're still doing it, I'm sure. Um, I, I, I have to say, I, I thought the, the discussion about gunmen and the interviews with Gosler, uh, uh, one, I, I have to say, it's, it's, it, uh, maybe it's a conflict of interest. I know three quarters of the people that you use to humanize this issue. Uh, I, I'm beginning to think I'm uh, lucky that you didn't pick on me. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, Gosler is a delightfully cynical uh, uh, purveyor of the espionage dark arts. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with him and I, I really, uh, I've always enjoyed that uh, because uh, I'm not easily shocked, but every once in a while I would say, God, I would never have thought of that. <laughs> so I, 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 I enjoyed that, uh, uh, that discussion. I, let me, because I want to try to give you a chance to sum up, but if you were to say to somebody, I know you don't want to write the next book until your uh, uh, son gets out of high school, um, uh, but uh, if you were to say to somebody who wanted to write the sequel to this, what should they focus on? Where would you send them? Such a good question. I think that you know some of the things I've gotten dinged on in the review for my own paper, for instance, was that I didn't focus enough on poli policy recommendations. And that was a little bit on purpose. I mean, I was writing this book at the same time as David Sanger was writing The Perfect Weapon. And I knew yeah. he was going to focus. I, I, the, the, the New York Times was wrong and you, and you were right. Okay. Uh, I, 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 more, more policy. Uh, the, 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 we're, we're awash in policy, most of which tells you what you know, which is this is really hard and nobody's got good answers. Yeah, so I, you know, so I stayed a little bit away from that. I also think it just comes down to, and I know this sounds lame, but you know, awareness and the technology itself. You know, I really... The NSA is not the only villain in the in the corporations. I really wanted people to understand 
how we feed into our own vulnerability and that, yes, it's tedious and we try and beat you over the head with it, but it is really critical that you run your software updates and it's really critical you use multi-factor authentication and the passwords are gone and it's critical that we design these systems as if they're broken. And so, you know, I wanted to, to focus there, but I think if I was going to do a sequel, it probably would look at the various policy recommendations and which are actually practical because none of these problems have easy solutions. They really don't. I mean, even the VEP process, I'm just grateful we have one. You know, we are, we are one of the only governments on earth that have a process like this. You know, we know a little bit about the UK and I know right. Germany has proposed doing something similar, but we're the only, no one in Iran is sitting around a big mahogany table talking about whether to disclose a, you know, zero day over to Microsoft so that everyone else is more safe. You know, we really should get credit for that. That said, when you look at what we know, and let's just talk about Eternal Blue, you know, this one exploit that was dumped online. You know, all the criteria we're told that goes into the VEP discussions. How widely is it used? Are threat actors likely to exploit it? How severe is it? Will knowledge of this vulnerability, if revealed, you know, destroy government's relationship with industry? According to every one of those criteria, we should have turned over Eternal Blue long before we did. You know, we held on to it for more than five years. And I actually went and found TAO hackers that talked about this, and they said, it was getting the best intelligence that we were able to get on terrorists. It was never up for serious consideration that we would turn this over. But at the same time, we recognized that we were, quote, fishing with dynamite. We knew that in the wrong hands, this was going to be an incredibly dangerous tool. And I think as you've pointed out, you know, there is this very short window. And sometimes it's not so short when you turn over these vulnerabilities to the tech companies and they release a patch when everyone preys on it and uses this exploit for as many attacks as they possibly can before people run their software updates. And I wanted to make sure I made that clear in the book too, because I wanted people to understand that yes, it is urgent you run your software updates because there is this critical period and you yourself could be a target in that period. So, but there's no neat solutions there. You know, if they had turned it over four years ago, we might've seen the same attacks. I, I don't know. Um, but I think five years is a long time. Yeah. I think a cynic would say this is more of the corporate propaganda trying to say, if only NSA would tell us about the mistakes that we made, we wouldn't have mistakes. And I, you know, I'm pretty skeptical of that. Uh, and every patch that they do, as you say, uh, generates attacks. So the idea that the NSA should be enthusiastically telling people to patch stuff uh, when there's no sign that anybody else is using the uh, the attack is open to some question. I, uh, but uh, this is a matter, as I think everybody agrees, it's a line to be drawn. The only question is where you draw it but i think the amount of attention that the equities process gets is way out of proportion to its contribution to our security even if it were run by the secretary mm -hmm. of commerce i think people are just fascinated as i am you know which is the reason i wrote the book by the moral calculus involved and you know one of the recommendations i toss out at the end of the book um, and, you know, I know I'm a reporter, right? I've never worked in intelligence. So I always feel a little naive tossing out recommendations. And it's an awkward position for a reporter to be in in general. But one of the things I toss out is that we should have more civilian agencies represented in that process. Because these days, 
hospitals are getting ransomware, you know, every other week. You know, railways, cars, airplanes, you know, why wouldn't we have uh, the Department of Health and Human Services or the Department of Transportation involved in these discussions, too, because these are now legitimate targets. Um, but, you know, it's 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 a messy process. And, you know, one one night I sat next to Michael Hayden at a dinner at the Aspen Security Conference with his lovely wife, and I just dumped all of my questions on him. I said, you know, I was just I just got back from Buenos Aires. They're buying, you know, they're selling these zero days to Iran. They think we're evil. You know, this thing's totally out of control. And he just kind of sat down and, and sat back and said, you know, Nicole, some problems don't have easy solutions. And that is what this is. And so I, I think that the next sequel, I'd probably try to look more carefully at some of the solutions, but it's such a hard space when you haven't played it in it yourself um, and you don't know the value that some of these exploits are are netting us in terms of intelligence and tracking terror cells and and securing the United States. It is it is a hard uh, place to come in as an outsider to offer solutions. But what I wanted to do with the book was just open this up to the average American to make it accessible so that they do understand that there is a trade-off being made and that we can have some of these conversations in a way that is more easily accessible to people. Okay, so that leads to, to the last two questions, which are, did your mom read it? And did she change any of her uh, uh, cybersecurity habits as a result? Uh, my mom did read it. I think she was the first person to read it outside my um, security expert crowd that, that gave it a good close read for me. And unfortunately, I think all it did was uh, drive her away from online banking. <laughs> I think it scared her a little well, that's bit. A that's yeah. a good step, right? And I right? think she was a little upset with me that I didn't tell her some things, you know, like I, you know, that someone broke into my hotel room in Buenos Aires and um, that people were offering good money to hack my phone and my computer on the dark web and that she only found out about in the book, so. Okay, well, um, Nicole Perloth, uh, the book is This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, uh, uh, just out in the last uh, two weeks. Uh, uh, thank you so much for being generous with your time, and um, we'll invite you back uh, uh, when your son graduates from high school <laughs> or you write your next book, whichever comes thank first. Thank you so much, Dora. <laughs> it's always fun talking to you. These were definitely my most, the most difficult questions I've gotten. You're a good interviewer. All right. Well, it's great to, to talk to you. Uh, and uh, uh, let me just uh, say uh, to Paul, to Mark, to Nate, uh, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, I want to recognize, uh, uh, Nicole, you'll appreciate this, uh, a milestone for the Cyber Law Podcast for the first time in history. We have been cited by the Harvard Law Review in a student note, uh, uh, which favorably used our our. Uh, characterization of the Schrems II decision um, as to sum up uh, what uh, what it really meant. They called it, uh, they quoted us calling it solipsistic Europocracy meets judicial imperialism. It's a great honor uh, and uh, uh, at least a tribute to uh, our ability to move the Overton window on the European Court of Justice. Um, so I'm really quite thrilled about that. Uh, uh, if you're interested in working for the uh, CyberLaw podcast, we are still thinking about uh, uh, hiring an intern. So send your uh, information to CyberLaw podcast at Steptoe. 
www.weissmansounddesign.com. Uh, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 349 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 